Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Salmon. He is a full professor in the psychology department at the University of Redlands. She is the co-author of Warrior Lovers. She has written chapters in numerous books, including Buses and Book of Evolutionary Psychology and The Literary Animal. She is also a co-editor of the books Evolutionary Psychology, Public Policy and Personal Decisions, Family Psychology and Evolutionary Perspective, and the Oxford Handbook of Evolutionary Family Psychology, both of those with Todd Shackelford, and also co-author with Catherine Schumann of The Secret, uh, the Secret Power of Middle Children. Her primary research interests include birth order and the family, reproductive suppression and dieting behavior, and female sexuality, particularly with regard to prostitu prostitution and pornography. Her interest in pop culture also led to co-authoring a chapter on female wrestling fans and their fantasies in Still Share to the Head, The Pleasure and Pain of Professional Wrestling. So I guess that this interview should be fun. <laughs> uh, I mean, in the introduction, I'm already talking about prostitution, pornography, dieting behavior, wrestling. So let's see where this goes. <laughs> Dr. Salman, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Okay, great. So, uh, I mean, let's start with perhaps a question about birth order. And I, I want to ask you about this because as far as I know, at least, uh, there have been some problems with the literature on the effects that birth order have, at least on, on some aspects of human psychology. Like, for example, there was that uh, hypotheses uh, where people said, I, I can't remember the author of it, but people said basically or proposed that uh, it would make sense for siblings to acquire or develop different personality traits based on their birth order, like for example, um, a, an older sibling aligning more with the status quo or something like that, because the, I mean, it would be in their interest to align their interests with their parents, for example, and then uh, a younger sibling, since that niche would already be occupied to develop uh, other sorts of personality traits, like, for example, higher openness to experience uh, and uh, higher, um, uh, not extroversion, but but maybe higher disagreeableness or something like that. But uh, but I mean, I, I guess I guess that that sort of specific literature has been questioned and it didn't replicate. But in terms of birth order in general, what are the sorts of uh, effects that you have studied? Sure. Okay. So. Um in general, the things that I've studied actually have not been um, personality things, actually, because I've been interested in, in more looking at people's behavior and their attitudes towards family members. And so I've been looking at it from that perspective, and I'll talk a bit about it in a minute. You were talking about um, Frank Silloway's niche um, diversification kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, that's and right. he very much, a lot of his work was focused on um, you know how this would affect personality. And you're right, the personality literature has been all over the place. There have been lots of debates over how you're measuring, are you doing it right, are you controlling for family size, and all these other variables. And so it is a little bit of a mess uh, at the moment. And we keep seeing studies coming out, and one says one thing and one says another thing. And so there, I think there are some real challenges. The kind of work that I have done looking at birth order is looking at it as a way of indexing parental investment in a sense, right? So the idea is that parents have limited resources to invest in their children. And of course, ancestrally more limited than we do now, right? Because if you live in a, you know, Western population like Southern California, lots of people have lots of resources to invest in their offspring and they don't have that many. But if you think about the ancestral world, we had a lot more offspring often, we had a lot more decisions to make about which offspring were gonna be the best ones to actually invest in. And so birth order in some ways is really just simply a proxy for um, parental decisions about investment. And maybe those investment decisions are gonna go in particular directions. And some of this alludes to what you were talking about with firstborns tending to get a 
particular amount of time where they're the uh, sort of undiluted recipient of parental attention. It's the only child. And then you have another child comes along and you have a little bit of a diversification there in terms of parental investment. And then you might have a third or a fourth or whatever. And what my research was mainly focused on was the idea, well, if firstborns tend to have a period of time where they're the sole focus of investment, they will tend to get a little bit more investment than other children. But that also the baby of the family as the last opportunity to invest also and also as the last one, they tend to also have a period of time where they may be the only child getting a lot of parental investment. And so that may influence how they see family relationships, their relationships with their parents and their relationships with their siblings in different ways than it does for the middle child who always has to share, right? They're always in that position of having um, diluted parental attention, affection, whatever. And so most of my research was looking at how middle children were different from first and last in terms of their attitudes towards family versus looking for social support elsewhere outside the family. So a lot of it was looking at the difference between uh, middles and uh, middles being more peer focused and first and last being more parental focused. Um, and at least in terms of a few studies, um, some of the work that I did has been replicated in other places. So that always makes me excited. It's always very excited when somebody can find similar results <laughs> to what you've looked at. Um, but showing that that middle children tend to uh, be more peer focused and friend focused, whereas you often see more of a family attachment thing happening with firsts and lasts. And people have looked at it in different ways. Like some of the people look at it in terms of like, okay, well, how much money do people spend on presents for people in their family? Do they spend more or less money on their parents or their siblings? Um, do they spend more time with their family? Do they stay in more contact? Various different kinds of measures of that. And in general, in studies where they do split them into middle first, middle, and last. Make sure that you have that, that U-shaped opportunity to look at that difference. You do see middleborns looking different from the other birth orders. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is uh, one, of the, um, one of the things from which uh, sibling conflict stems, right? That, right. Uh, that uh, in, in, in part, at least due to the birth order, parents tend to invest in different ways in different children sure and almost so that's partially influenced by whatever the skills of the children are right so i mean and in some cultures by the sex of the child so there are some cultures where being the first boy is what's important so the first girl might not get the extra boost but the first boy does even if the first boy is the second or third child right okay. so there's those kinds of factors that influence it as well as well as how big the spacing is between them. But yeah, basically sibling conflict is conflict for the most part over shared resources, right? It's conflict over how parents divvy up their time and energy and resources. And sometimes depending on how close they are in age, it can also be competition over like friends and social circles or mates if they're the same sex. Um, but a lot of it will be over, you know, like mom loves you best or, you know, you got a bigger piece of the cake or something like that. So there's a lot of like territorial uh, conflict that can happen between children in the same family. <laughs> and there's also always a present dynamic of parent offspring conflict because uh, you referred to, for example, sibling conflict over mates. But mm -hmm. I mean, there's also parent offspring mm -hmm. conflict over the mates of their of, of the parents offspring. Right? Sure. And I mean, that goes back to that sort of very basic kind of logic in, in Trevor's early work, right, that that if you look at um, you know, parents resource allocation, right? We're always looking at what's going to improve long-term reproductive success. And some children are better bets for actually being able to turn that investment from the parents into actual reproductive success of their own. And when it comes to those children's mating decisions, right, the parents aren't necessarily only interested in the genetic quality of children's mate choices. They're interested in what can they do for the rest of the family and can this bring other opportunities for my other children, right? And so they might care, for example, more about the financial prospects of a partner than how pretty that partner is. Mm -hmm. 
and this connects directly with the with the, some basic aspects of evolutionary biology because i mean it's not only in our own interest to reproduce but we also want our children to re to successfully reproduce and their children's children and and things like that because i mean if we stop at the children even if we reproduce then it's also a dead end there. Right, because it's really about, like, if you're thinking about it at that biological level, it's about genetic representation, right? And, you know, it's all fine and dandy for your children, you know, to, for you to invest a lot in them and for them to be successful, but if they don't actually reproduce in turn, it's done, right? I mean, so if you don't have offspring, then your great genetic combinations, whatever has made you so successful, doesn't get passed down. So there's that interest in your children's and your children's children's reproduction. And then also in your own siblings, for example, children and their reproduction, right? Because there's that inclusive fitness from, you know, your, your sibling's success. Mm -hmm. So it actually is a broad, there's a broad collection of people that you're interested in what they get up to in terms of their success, but also their reproductive success in particular. Yeah. So I guess that since the introduction to the episode, people would prefer for us to start talking about pop culture and and the sex differences in terms of uh, preferences at the level of arts and entertainment and things like that. But just before we get into that, because recently I released an interview with Dr. Marion Fisher that was very interesting, trying to connect evolutionary psychology with feminism and feminist studies. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that we could start maybe uh, uh, talking about some aspects of female sexuality and mating, like for example, um, dieting behavior and anorexia, because there are some hypotheses out there, particularly from evolutionary psychology, as to uh, why and in what circumstances women are led to uh, eat less than mm. they should, let's say, be, because they want to look prettier. But I, I mean, what do you, what do we know about that from evolutionary right. psychology? Right. Well, what, one of the things we know is that it generally doesn't make them prettier to men, right? In <laughs> that men generally find a, actually a slightly heavier standard of beauty more attractive than women do. So that if you give men and women the same pictures to look at, women actually prefer a skinnier girl often, especially in Western cultures, than the men actually do. And and you can actually, pop culture is a good place to actually see that reflected. But if you look at porn stars, they're extremely curvaceous, right? <laughs> they, ha they may have small waists, but they have big backsides and they have big breasts, right? Which you can't get if you diet yourself into a sort of anorexic state. And that's what men like to look at. So it's, I, I think that one of the things that, um, that, is useful to think about when thinking about issues about reproductive suppression in women and anorexic behavior or dieting behavior in women is that it really isn't about what guys want. <laughs> Even if the women might be rationalizing it that way, it's not really about that. And so the work that I did, um, and a lot of it I did when I was doing my postdoc up in Vancouver with Chuck Crawford, was looking at reproductive suppression in two different ways. One of it, one way is to look at it as a way of self-regulating your reproduction in times when it's bad to reproduce, right? So one could imagine you've got times when um, you could have poor environmental conditions when it's not going to be good to reproduce. You've got a drought, something like that going on. Um, there could be times when there's a lot of uh, other women around who are being very aggressive and competitive and maybe not a lot of good quality guys around that are going to be helpful in raising offspring. These are all times when it might be useful to not reproduce. And in order to do that in a non-contracepting world, one way of doing that is to reduce your level of body fat so that you're actually not going to be ovulating anymore, right? And you don't have to shove it down that low to really change that ovulatory status. I mean, people who compete at an, like an Olympic level as gymnasts are typically not ovulating because their reproductive, the, their body fat has dropped below that level. So if we look at that, it's really about, okay, is it a good time to reproduce and will it be better in the future? Because the other thing is, is if it's always going to be crappy, you might as well just reproduce now anyways and, and hope for the best. But if you're in a period of time where you could see a future time when it would be better to reproduce then than now, suppressing reproduction through lowering body weight 
would be one adaptive way of trying to deal with that problem. The flip of that is that it may also be the case that dominant women in a population might choose to try and suppress the reproduction of subordinate women, right? So you could have situations where really powerful and successful women are the ones who are promoting ideas about what kind of weight is ideal in other individuals in order to make them less attractive and uh, suppress their you know, ovulation, the reproduction, so that they remove some of the competition. So there's a sort of sinister female <laughs> exploitation aspect that could be going on, but of a mechanism that probably was there ancestrally to allow women in a non-contracepting world to modulate their own reproduction. Um, now, in the modern world, that may create some particular problems, right? So you could have lots of problems with dominant women suppressing other women. You could also have um, an excessive amount of signaling that it's not a good time to reproduce. So like, for example, one of the populations that has historically had a lot of trouble with uh, eating disorders are all girls schools, where there's a lot of female competition. And it's not even necessarily competition about boys per se, but it's just about who's got the higher status. Mm -hmm. And so competition for status has as big an impact on women as any other kind of competition in terms of creating this kind of stress reaction that makes them tend to eat less. You know, it's interesting that at the very beginning of your answer, you refer to the fact that uh, a very skinny body is not really what men prefer because, I mean, sometimes I have discussions with women because they say, you know, that story about the patriarchy and the beauty standards and, and things like that. And they say that men nowadays uh, are forcing that sort of body image on women because until recently, particularly in the fashion industry, they imposed sort of the, those sorts of standards and I mean but uh, but then I think but, but I myself never liked that sort of body and even other men and friends that I talk with I mean they don't seem interested in that sort of thing it seems that it was just some yeah. sort of some sort of niche thing that happened during a, a, a certain period of time in the fashion industry and sure. now and now p people are turning to the other extreme and they want for obese women to be accepted and that, that's also not good so i, I mean th this is more complicated than people paint it i guess I agree. I mean, I agree. I think that, you know, all of the research that's pretty much out there looking at what men prefer suggests that men prefer um, a much curvier, like the, you know, Jessica Rabbit in the cartoon version, but like a much curvier, a Marilyn Monroe style shape, right? Not the really stick straight shape that you get if somebody is dieting to extreme level. And part of that is because if you diet that much uh, to the point that, that you're an ovulatory, uh, you really don't have a lot of um, body fat in the places girls have normally have body fat. So you're losing that hip curve and you're losing the breast curve. <clears throat> and the, the issue with that is, is that you don't look like an adult woman anymore. Instead, you look like a boy or a prepubescent girl. And in general, adult men don't find prepubescent girls sexually attractive. <laughs> they find sexually mature, women and girls sexually attractive. And so these things that are markers of, of sexual differentiation, like breasts and the hip curve and all that, are exactly what men find sexually attractive. And so if you remove those, in a sense, you really are removing yourself out of the majority sort of group of what men find attractive. And again, I think the popular culture is a really good example of that. If you ask men to rank celebrity women in terms of what they find attractive. You see people like um, Angelina Jolie, you know, like that style of body build being considered attractive. And she may be very skinny, but when you look at her in movies, what they emphasize are the curves of her body, right? And you see it with other kinds of um, celebrity figures that, that are attractive that are in movies. And then you see it again with the pornography industry, which for the most part is about very curvaceous, women and even though there is a market for women who are young in pornography or at least young looking right the sort of teen type thing um they're still sexually mature looking and there's also a really big market for what they call milfs right the 
older, a little bit older, not that old, but like 30-year-old, so I'm not going to say that old, but 30-year-old woman who is particularly sexually mature looking, looks like she could have had children, is very curvaceous. Um, and you see a lot of demand for that. And I think that that's just simply a reflection of the fact that, yes, sexually mature women are what men are attracted to. And nobody should be surprised by that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I mean, th that bit about the MILF category <laughs> in pornography, I guess that's very interesting because, uh, I, I mean, th they talk about them as if they are old women. But f f first of all, most of them are not really that old. They are right. in their thirties, as you said, or somewhere around that. But not only that, but even the ones that are a bit older, they seem to me that they retain some of the characteristics that mm -hmm. men associate with uh, with a healthy, fertile mm -hmm. female body, right? It's it's yeah. as if they are still in their prime years, even if they are not really, right? Right, because I think there are many things about our modern environment that actually allow for women to look younger longer, right? So not only is there like the whole plastic surgery, sort of cosmetic surgery industry that can help us do that, but also many people, they, they might take better care of their skin, they wear sunscreen, they stay out of the sun, so they're less wrinkly. Um, if you look at, at, at sort of populations that are living more the way that we did historically, the women do look older when they're at a younger age. So a 30-year-old there looks a lot older than a 30-year-old who's, you know, growing up, you know, in London or something like that, right? Um, and so there's that difference as well. And so we tend to think about, well, this is the age range for fertility. But ancestrally, we, you didn't necessarily know anything about how old somebody was in terms of the actual years, right? You just, did they look fertile or not? Yeah. And nowadays, you could be 40 and look fertile and be a popular porn star if you, if you still had that kind of physical, like you had large full breasts, curvy shape, and not a lot of wrinkles, nice looking hair, no gray, you know, all those kinds of things. Then, you know, you look sexually attractive to men because you look fertile. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think the MILF category is so popular is that they're, and I think also part of the repeal is that we have an idea that women at that age, if they're, if they're engaging in sex, know what they want, but also that if they're having that kind of sex, um, they may be interested in short term sex, right? Mm -hmm. Because they may be already married, they may have been married and divorced, but whatever they're interested in, it's they're interested in short-term mating. And then that's also very appealing as a fantasy for a lot of men. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that they they are also the or they signal that they are more experienced than they know how to pleasure a man or something like that. And I guess that's also appealing to sure. to many men at least. Yeah. Uh, and uh, talking about pornography and also adding the topic of prostitution, uh, I mean, I, I I also wondered because looking at the literature on the evolutionary psychology of female. Uh, sexual preferences, for example, uh, and mate preferences that, I mean, I, I was, I also, uh, I always wondered if there, there was a set of personality traits that would uh, make some women like um, being, being part of the porn industry or being a prostitute, because I would imagine that doing those sorts of jobs for most women wouldn't be that easy. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, that it wouldn't be that appealing to many women to engage in those. I think it, I think it does depend a little bit on a variety of things. And I think it may be different for pornography versus prostitution in some cases, because there's a lot more women who probably go, well, there may be women who go into pornography for this too, but there's less evidence for it, I think. But um, they go into prostitution because um, they don't have great job opportunities, um, but they need money, um, and they're young and attractive, and this is a way that they can make money. Um, to do it for a long period of time, um, having lots of sex with lots of different guys, I think that that would be really challenging for most women, because most women prefer their sexual relationships to be with one person or maybe a few people, but they, they tend to like committed relationships, right? 
Um, and they tend to have better sex in their committed relationships than they do in those those sort of short-term or first-time kinds of interactions. And so if there are women who are going to be more able to deal with that kind of job, especially over a longer period of time, I think uh, there are going to be certain personality traits that, that may have to do with things like sociosexuality, right? Are you just someone who has a more short-term mating strategy, right? So if you think about life history strategy, are you just, you know, are you an RRK strategist, you know, going back to that sort of thing? Are you a, a long-term horizon person or a shorter-term horizon person? And for the shorter-term horizon person, the theory is that the personality traits of those people are better adapted to that strategy, mm -hmm. in which case you might see that. I think if you look at, at women and some of the studies that have been done looking at women in the porn industry, again, a lot of people used to have this idea that women who work in the porn industry, they all must have been abused or had bad things happen to them. And the data doesn't support that from studies that have been done looking at them. And there was one that was done, it's called I don't remember the title, the whole title, but it was called the testing the damaged goods hypothesis, basically. And they were they actually uh, assessed women or interviewed women who were coming into um, a sexual health clinic that was set up for women in the industry. Because of course, for a long time in California, women had to and and the men had to go and get tested, right? Because we worry about sexually transmitted diseases in that kind of industry. Um, and so they interviewed people in that kind of setting. Um, and got lots of information about their circumstances, why they went into the industry. So if you're looking at somebody who's going to be happy and, and psychologically healthy, engaging in pornography, maybe for like as their whole career, maybe they start as an actress and finish as a director or a writer or something, right, when they're older, because you can't do that forever because, of course, once you're much over 40, that's probably not going to be a big thing. But um, that you're going to be like, again, high in things like openness to experience. You're going to tend to have a more recreational view of sex. You're not going to see it as being something that's just about relationships or something like that. It's about having fun. If you have that particular kind of mindset, you're going to do better in the industry. I think for men in general, they do fine in the industry, except that, again, if they have performance issues, I think that's very stressful for men in the industry. And Viagra helps that nowadays, so guys don't have that same problem. But that used to be the big problem for men, right? It's like, you know, oh my god, there's 10 people staring at me and now I actually can't perform. And then that's bad for their self-esteem, right? That's hard for them. In a way that I think the industry doesn't tend to have effects on women's self-esteem in the same way. So we're focusing on pornography and in a sense we're already talking a little bit about pop culture or at least patterns of consumption for people. And isn't it the case that studying pop culture or what people consume is a more objective way of assessing their preferences than, for example, uh, questionnaires or things like that? Because I would imagine that uh, particularly when it comes to pornography and even we're going to talk also about romance novels for women and things like that, that it's easy for us to get into what people really want and like without asking them directly because people might not want to talk about that. Right. I mean, that's one of the challenges of doing survey research, right, is how honest are people actually being? Are they going to tell you what they what they really want? Um, and do they know what they really want, right? There's there's always that concern, too. Or how introspective really are they in, in terms of understanding that? And so one of the advantages of any kind of unobtrusive measure of people's behavior is that it sort of removes that from the equation. So one of the things that I think is really useful about pop culture, but it's also, there's a lot of things that can be useful that are unobtrusive measures, but I, from what I'm interested in, pop culture is certainly a big one, um, is that those unobtrusive measures remove your interference with the participant that can influence their behavior, they're worrying about social desirability, those things are sort of dropped out of the equation. So now if you get the same kind of results from your survey as you do from your unobtrusive measures, then I think you can feel pretty confident that you know what's going on right but you but if they disagree something's not what you think it is <laughs> in that kind of situation and so yeah I think there's real value whether you're um, studying um, pornography consumption statistics or you're studying homicide statistics right both of those things tell you something about the design of the human mind in a way that you might not get if you were actually just asking people outright what they thought was going on. Um, and so 
from my perspective, I think there's two really interesting ways in which evolutionary psychology intersects with pop culture. One is that you can use evolutionary psychology to better understand the, the, the pop culture itself if you are a researcher in those fields. But also for us, pop culture is a great artifact, right? Just like being an archaeologist and looking at the fossil record and looking at tools, we can look at what people watch, what they make, what they read, what they masturbate to, whatever. And it tells us something about what is going on inside their heads in terms of what's ideal. And also the other problem is even if you look at people's actual behavior in the mating realm, right, the, what they actually do is not necessarily the ideal design because there's compromises, right? Everybody might want a 10, but everybody doesn't get to have a 10 because not everybody else is a 10, right? So there's that, that negotiation that happens. In photography, they, you don't have to have the negotiation, right? It doesn't matter if the guy's two or ten. He can watch the same woman, and he probably will like to watch the same woman. Mm -hmm. But this works well with pop culture. So, because, for example, if we're talking about more historical sources of art, for example, uh, because most of the art until a very recent period in history was basically commissioned by the elites. I mean, it could be the case that if we look back in time and we're trying to understand people's preferences back then and look into the pieces of art that reached us, I mean, it could be a, a little bit more misleading because it, it could in a way express the preferences of the people who commissioned that piece of art or even of the artist himself and not of the people in general, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, in, in a sense, that's the beauty of pop culture, right, is that it appeals to the masses, and we're actually interested in the masses, right? We're not interested in one particular tiny segment of the population. If you've got millions and millions and millions of people consuming something, it tells you more than if you have, um, you know, I don't know, even a hundred people who are going to go to see this very specific art exhibit on a specific thing that in general people look at and go, yeah, I don't even understand that. Right? So there's that high art thing and then the popular culture thing. And I think in many ways the popular culture thing is the more informative. And it's also interesting because it can even allow you to look at sort of differences between subpopulations of people. So you can look at like, okay, how do our preferences change over time? And what are they like for young males versus young females and, and things like that, right? And I mean, that's a popular thing to look at in, in, in that sort of area is to look at differences between males and females. And we allude to that with the discussion of, of pornography and romance novels. But you also see it even if you just look at the content of things. So if you look at the content of music that's produced and aimed at female audiences versus male audiences, you often get very different things. And one of the ways that, that I think, one of the nice examples that I like of illustrating that is you look at you know um, rap music, which is largely targeted to a male audience, you see songs like Gold Digger, right? Sort of focusing on okay, what men should be concerned about in women. And then you look at what's produced for women and you look at, at things like, um, there's a Destiny's Child, no scrubs, right? Again, you know, yeah, you got to avoid those guys who are just going to be costly. You want to go with the guys that provide benefits. And so you really see like, this great sort of illustration of what these groups are worrying about in the mating market. And we can also get insights into sort of niche groups, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are niche categories, even in pornography and even in novels. And for example, later in the interview, we're going to talk about slash fiction. And I'm not sure if that's completely niche or not, but yeah. I, I would guess so. But anyway, there are particular categories that are not highly popular, but because we have uh, such high numbers of people uh, consuming those sorts of things, we can also get right. insights into uh, psychological variability. Sure. I mean, I, I, one of the things about, um, I think in particular about internet pornography that's so interesting is, of course, because it's cheap, right? As opposed to when we only had things that were made in film and you had to be sure that it was going to sell well, it really had to appeal to the widest range of people. Nowadays, you see internet pornography, it can be whatever small niche 
you know, even if there's only a handful of people that are interested in it, you'll probably find it online. And so you, you know, and I, I do an exercise on that with my students in my, in one of my classes and I have them go on the internet. It's like, okay, tell me what stuff you can find. And they find all sorts of things. And sometimes they're shocked at what they find and sometimes they're amused and sometimes, you know, the reactions can be quite interesting. But they, you'll find everything from like pornography that's exactly what you would expect where it's younger girls, you know, all very attractive, just sort of really ordinary sex. But then you'll also find, you know, BDSM, you'll find somebody like a site that's weird. It's just clowns having sex. <laughs> Which to me is the most horrifying thing that I could actually ever imagine because I, I'm totally afraid of them. But 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 you can see everything really in the in the range of what people might possibly be interested in. And that tells us something about the fact that there are big individual differences, even though there are all these things that are very common as well. And so that's an interesting message and a useful one for people to have. Um, and there's nothing particularly wrong with the variation. It's just it's variation. And you know, there's always variation in those kinds of traits. As long as it's not variation that's particularly maladaptive in terms of reproduction, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And that's important, right? Because I guess that one of the big criticisms that many people put forth against evolutionary psychology is that perhaps it tends to focus a lot on human universals or universal psychological traits of people. Uh, and I get, and I mean, when we think about individual differences, maybe we connect them more with disciplines like behavioral genetics and things like that. But I mean, even in evolutionary psychology, we can also understand how individual differences evolved. Right? Sure. Um, I think there's, and I think there's a lot of really good research at, on a broad level being done looking at individual differences within, within evolutionary psychology. And I think if you look at papers published in, a, in journals like Personality and Individual Differences, there's an amazing number of evolutionary psychologists that are publishing in journals like that because they are interested in, not just in universals, because part of it is, is the mechanisms may be universal, but of course the environment influences the output. And that's a lot of what the interest is, I think, in looking at individual differences in sexuality, is looking at what ways early environment may be interacting with the mechanisms to produce, you know, some very specialized interests in individuals as they get older, right? Now, some of them do seem sometimes, th there may be some that are maladaptive, right? So, like, if your preference is for having sex with animals, obviously, there's a maladaptiveness to that. Um, but if your preference is simply to um, engage in sexual interactions with someone who just, <clears throat> you know, it, 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 you know, maybe it's very typical, it's just an ordinary, you know, teenage, you know, like the teenage cheerleader kind of thing. But, um, you know, what you really like to do is, um, I don't know, like have her dressed up like a clown to pick my least favorite one. Um, while you do that, there's nothing particularly wrong with that, but maybe it was influenced by some early experiences that allowed for you to imprint on the sexuality of clowns. Don't want to think about how that happens, but you know, those things could happen. And I think, again, you know, it, it, for evolutionary psychology to fully mature as a field, we need to not only be able to explain those universals, but we need to have good theories for discussing where those individual differences also come from. And I think the environment's gonna be a big part of that, but also maybe some epigenetic effects, right? Where it's, you know, parental environment as well that's influencing then, you know, what you see in the offspring. Mm -hmm. And perhaps also consider a little bit more the learning component mm -hmm. in, uh, during people's development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that those things, are probably accounting for a lot of the individual variation that we see that drives things really to the extreme sometimes in looking at sexual behavior, right? Where, yeah, if you look at the majority of people, it's really boring and pedestrian. There's nothing interesting about their sexual preferences or their tastes or anything. If you just looked, if you had, if you could just like look at all of the photography that's out there, most of it's pretty boring. Um, although maybe that's partially a woman's approach to that, which I guess is a different I issue as well. But there is certainly lots of variation, and that variation does need to come from somewhere, and if we can't explain it, then our theory isn't good enough. So I think that we need to focus more on what those factors are. Mm -hmm. Is there any sort of pornography that is popular among women? 
because I, I don't know if that exists. I mean, I know that there there is feminist pornography that, that involves a little bit more of romance, let's say. But uh, I, I don't know to what extent that is popular among women or not. Yeah, there's actually a lot of debate about that. So, I mean, and some people, of course, would point out that, that it, if what we're really talking about is what kind of erotic fantasies do men and women want to engage with in pop culture, that for men it's more visual pornography and for women it's more written pornography, which may translate into romance novels or Fifty Shades of Grey or Slash or whatever other kinds of things women consume. They do seem to be less inclined to consume visual pornography. Now, trying to get good statistics on women's consumption of online pornography I think is actually quite challenging and Marianne Fisher and I have have looked at this um, but but also looking at like Pornhub for example releases statistics about consumption on their site but they don't tell you how they actually determine some of the information in that so for example they will give you information on the the um, number of women uh, consuming pornography from a particular country versus the number of men and in most countries it's much lower the only country, well, the one country that really kind of stood out in their last data thing as having a rather large proportion of women consuming pornography was the Philippines. Not quite sure what was going on with that or why that would be the case, but that was one that stood out oddly a little bit. However, they don't tell you how they know whether the consumers are women or not. So are they looking at people who are only registered users who are paying for access to the site? Or are they somehow doing something with people's IP addresses and trying to analyze from their activity, whether they're male or female? And I think that that could be problematic because, again, it, it leaves you open to, are these really women or are they men? And how do you know? Yeah. So I think it's unclear how much consumption is going on um, at that larger level of that. Now, there is pornography... Um, that is supposed to be, as you say, feminist pornography or more female-friendly pornography um, that is a little bit more story-focused uh, and has more foreplay and like all this kind of stuff. But it's not really top-selling, and I think that is a reflection of the fact that, in general, most women aren't as interested in looking at it. They're more interested in imagining it. And so reading about it, you can picture them looking like however you want. And you're not sort of locked into that. And you can picture as much or as little as you want, depending on how explicit you want your fantasies to be. Um, there is also um, some, you know, lesbian pornography that is produced for lesbian women. And you get very mixed responses from lesbians as to whether they like it or not. Um, and many of them are not high consumers of it. So again, it's not a big money-making event. I mean, if you look at where the big money has been historically in pornography, it's been in heterosexual pornography produced for men and homosexual pornography produced for men, because gay men are also very active consumers of pornography um, and kind of look for what you would expect them to look for, that there's a lot of really young, attractive guys in those movies with nice bodies, right? Which is also why some women will say, it's actually more fun to watch gay porn because everybody looks like they're enjoying themselves and the guys are all good looking. So, but it's still not like a volume thing, like it can be for men, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, you were referring to the fact that men are more visual when it comes to sex. And just the other day, I interviewed Diana Fleischman a second time. And I was telling her that we are really simple minded when it comes to sex, because you go into a men's public bathroom and you see, for example, two circles and an inverted triangle on the door or on the wall. And we think that's the most amazing thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 mean, I agree. I think that there are substantial differences, right? which just comes back to basic, right? Like, I mean, men can assess so much visually, right, about women. So all that fertility stuff, that's visual information. Knowing whether a guy is going to actually hang around and help you raise kids, you, you can't tell by looking at a guy, right? You need all this information about him. And I think that's I mean, that's why there's so much written stuff, because written stuff isn't just about sex. It's about mate choice mm -hmm. and long-term mate choice. And there might be really hot sex in there, because there are lots of women who like to read about really hot sex. But it's not the only thing that's in there, 
right? And with pornography, it's really about the arousal, right? And if it's not doing that job, guys aren't going to watch it. Like, if, like you're not going to put on a porn and watch it for like two hours just to watch it. Like that's not what guys do, right? It's like the study that was done looking at um, how long people in hotel rooms watch adult films, showing that on average it's 15 minutes, right? It's long enough to get the job done. Yeah. <laughs> and then turn it off. And so there's, I think there's that sort of fundamental difference in terms of how we're, men and women are interacting with the actual pop culture product, that, that there's a different purpose to it as well. And so that visual part is very essential to the male purpose. It's not as essential to the female purpose because they're not necessarily masturbating while they're doing that. Whereas the majority of men who are consuming pornography are doing it for a masturbatory reason, whether they're doing it at the time or whether they're storing up a visual in, you know, record for later. <laughs> it's really focused much more on the gratification. Whereas for women, there's something else that they're getting out of it. Mm -hmm. So let's get a little bit more into um, women's preferences in, in terms of romance novels. I, I took this from your book, Warrior Lovers, <laughs> and you talk a little bit about what they prefer in the male characters. I mean, they, sure. the heroes of the stories there, I guess. And you talk about, for example, physical appearance, physical yep. and social competence intense love for the heroine. Uh, so could, could you tell us about that, about what are the specific traits that sure. women prefer in an idealized man, let's say. Right, right. The romance novel hero. I mean, really, when you look at the, like, and other people have done, have looked at this as well, but if you look at the romance novel hero, really there are sort of two big components. There's genetic quality, right? Mm -hmm. And there's commitment. These are the things that are important in the long-term mating thing, right? And so the physical appearance, he's always, like, tall, right? Like, the guys are always tall. They don't have to be, like, you know, giant, but they're always tall. Um, they're always physically fit. Um, they're always capable men. So, like, the feeling that, like, if something bad happened, they would be able to deal with the consequences, right? Um, all of these things that would make someone a good provider and a good protector, right, which ancestrally would have been super important. But also, the whole thing about the, their intense love for the heroine, that's about the commitment part, right? Because you kind of have to somehow get past the fact that a lot of times guys might want sex, but not commitment, right? But if you're looking for a long-term mate, you want the guy who's willing to commit. And that has to be the guy who can't live without you, right? And so that's what you see in the romance novel, is that there are these male characters where in the end they're so in love with the heroine that they cannot live without her and that's sort of the sort of assessment of okay if he he's that intensely into you he will actually stay with you as you get older <laughs> and as you raise your children and you go through that sort of process and so there's part of it is about you know the hero as a you know uh physically strong competent man and part and and maybe socially dominant, but but then there's also that part that's about is he going to be a good dad? Is he going to be committed to a long-term relationship? And of course, again, one of those things you sometimes can visually um, access easily. The other one, I mean, you can't. You need the story. You need all that extra information. It's also why women talk so much about guys when they're dating them and starting it out. They want to know what everybody else thinks, right? Just like you know, you want to assess what kind of guy is he. And what you really mean is, is he going to be committed? Is he going to cheat? Is he going to be that kind of guy? Um, and so romance novels are really about finding guys that are the perfect guy, which, I mean, most guys are not going to be perfect like that. But in a lot of times, you'll get guys that will be willing to commit, but they may not be as high as you would like them to be on one side of the scale. Or if you get a guy that's like, you know, the physical perfection, dominance, whatever part of it, he might not be the one that's as committed to the relationship, right? And so... In romance novels, they get the perfection of what they want. They get both, even though in real life, both is hard to come by. <laughs> um, but that's why the heroes look the way they do, I think, and why you don't... You know, there was this period of time when Harlequin tried to run this series with what we sort of jokingly referred to as kindler, gentler heroes, guys that were kind of a little bit more sappy, a little bit more new-agey. Uh, in touch with their feminine sides, and it didn't sell well. But that's, that's not what women want to fantasize about. That they actually might choose a guy like that because he might be a really good dad. 
but they don't want to fantasize about that generally. The fantasy is about, you know, the manly guy who's like just devoted to you kind of thing. And so that's what you see when you look at the heroes of most romance novels. But are you saying that feminists are a bit misled about their own psychology? Because recently there are some feminists that say that they would prefer for men to be more open about their feelings and a little bit more feminine and I mean and 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 for and for them to cry in front of them when they want and to express right. their feelings a little bit more and then there's also the APA guidelines for toxic masculinity. Oh, don't talk to me about those. That's awful, I think in so many ways I think that's problematic because I think it also is telling men that if they're what many people might call traditional men because I wouldn't call it toxic necessarily but like if you're a traditional guy they're saying that that's bad that you should be something else it is like there's no evidence that that's bad um and i think you know my view on you know i cannot speak for what some feminists might or might not want in their man sure. um but what i would think is that you know we do know that we're not always aware of our motivations right that's why we actually do things like look at pop culture not just look at what somebody says on a survey um, and, you know, I, I would suggest that sometimes when women say they want those kinds of men, that's because they want men that they can control. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, and that, that are submissive to them, right, as opposed to men who are actually going to be their equals. And I think that that's one of the challenges sometimes of, of dealing with this balance, um, you know, in terms of um, what men and women want out of relationships with each other is like, you know, you want men to provide certain things and then you say, well, okay, but I don't want you to do this. And I think that some of these things are, are um, they go together in a clump, right? Mm -hmm. So you might say that you want a kinder, gentler guy, um, but do you want a guy who can like also like do repairs of your house and <laughs> that if there's a natural disaster that, that he actually will be useful? Um, you know, these things, like, do you want if you want them, sometimes those things are all going to come in a clump together and you're not going to get both sides. So I'm not sure how often you get those combinations, uh, the way that some people would like to have them. But I also think um, that in general there has been, and whether it's an honest thing in terms of what people really want or whether there's an agenda around it in terms of whether it's in terms of controlling men or something about women's roles, that there isn't there is a, a definite push to uh, make men less traditionally masculine um and we we tend to discourage boys from being very aggressive while at the same time often encourage girls to be aggressive right, right. we think it's great to be a tomboy for girls but boys who roughhouse that's a problem and that's really kind of a weird thing to do because you're sort of suggesting that that um you know there's something wrong inherently with being male and I think that's a problem. I, I mean, because I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with being male or female. They don't have to be the same thing. And that may be part of it, right? If the philosophy is that there are no differences between men and women, well, you're going to have to change men and women to, to get rid of the differences that actually are there. And so that might be part of it, right, is an agenda of trying to r remove those differences. But I don't think that that's a very easy thing to do. I mean, I think hormonally, we're different. And you can find some girls that act more masculine and some boys that act more feminine. But a lot of times, too, if you look at that, you can see hormone differences in those individuals that are influencing that. Mm -hmm. And that's the, th the thing, right? Because, I mean, when, for example, feminists talk about gender and they deal with it as it is, as if it was something completely separated from biological sex, right. let's say, and they say that the, it is just the set of psychological characteristics that are usually associated with men and women, but that they are only or, or, or they are just socio-cultural constructs. I mean, it's not, I guess, that they are saying that people sh should be just what they want. I guess that many times what they're saying is that men and women should be something that they idealize that they should be, I guess. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, when you were saying, for example, that uh, 
people are saying that boys should be less aggressive and boy and girls i mean we could be a little more permissive about that in them i mean they are making statements still about how boys and girls and men and women should behave so Right, it's all prescriptive. Whether you're saying they should be more similar, you should say they should be more different. I mean, yeah. it's still prescriptive as opposed to just saying, well, they are the way they are. I mean, just let them do whatever they want. Like, it's like when you look at children's toy preferences, right? In general, boys and girls prefer different toys. There are some boys that like girls' toys, and there are some girls that like boys' toys. Um, and we do have, I think, at least in Western cultures, more sort of proscriptions against boys interacting a lot with girls' toys, but that's because there has been a long history of sort of associating that with those boys being homosexual and a general societal disapproval of that and that somehow if they do that it's going to make them more likely to which there's not a lot of evidence that somehow interacting with your sister's barbies is going to make you you know not like girls and like boys but we tend to encourage girls when they want to play with their brother's trucks and things like that but but i think even you know beyond that if you look at how they interact with their toys they even play with them different if you give them both action figures, which is what we call it when boys play with dolls, they don't play with them the same. Even when they're very little, um, you know, boys are much more aggressive with their toys. They don't <laughs> take care of them as well. They tend to throw them off the building. They have G.I. Joe, he dives off the roof. Whereas girls, if they have those sort of things, you know, they have like an apartment and they might, you know, be playing together and maybe they play house and they have a boy like G.I. Joe and Barbie and, you know, they get married and live in an apartment together or whatever. But they take care of them in a way that's different. It's like if you look at, at, at what happens to children's toys over time, boys' toys end up getting thrown out more as they get older, not just put in a box because they get damaged so much. <laughs> by the level of play and the style of play, right? Whereas girls, you know, if they have a little car, maybe they have one of their brother's cars as a hand-me-down, they'll have a bed for it and a blanket, and maybe it marries another car. I mean, there's a different way of thinking about some of those things. And I think when we say, well, they're the same, you're kind of missing out on that. It's, it's kind of shocking because you think if you've had children, you would recognize that. If you've had boys and girls, you see that they're different right from the start. And it's a weird thing to imagine that somehow that's a problem and you should erase it. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, let's just explore one last topic about uh, popular culture. I'm not sure if this is still popular or not, but let's talk about slash fiction. I mean, nope. w what's going on there? Why would women be interested in two popular characters, male characters being together and having a romantic relationship and sex and things like that? Sure. I mean, I think there's, I think there's actually probably a number of different reasons. And actually, it's probably more... There's more people consuming it now than when, when Don Simons and I wrote Warrior Lovers. And partially that's because of the internet, right? So it's made this much broader. But one of the most popular erotica sites or sites where you would read erotic material for women is actually a fan fiction site called archiveofourown.org, um, which has slash and non-slash. So it has stories that are not slash. It has heterosexual stuff and it has non-sexual stuff, but it also has an awful lot of um, slash stories and um, that, that have, you know, in cases, hundreds of thousands of people. There are millions of people who go to that site and read um, these stories. And so I think that it, its popularity has probably increased as opposed to decreased. And there could be a couple of reasons for that. I think there's also a greater just acceptance of same-sex relationships in the sense that so you may have some people who might have thought it was interesting because they thought the guys were attractive, but they were kind of like, I don't know about that because I don't approve of that. And there's some changes in that. But I think that, you know, some of the reasons for liking it, it typically both of the guys are guys that women think are attractive. Mm -hmm. Um... I think that there are aspects of the romantic part of the relationship, the way it's conceived in those stories, that solve some of the problems of romance novels better. And by that I mean um, they're usually friends first and then lovers, right? So there's a solidity to the relationship that may not be there when you just meet somebody in a bar and hook up. Um, but also that they tend to be super interdependent. They work together, they have these relationships often where 
they really rely on each other, they have these long histories of attachment, all things that to women signal this person's going to be there forever. And you can't probably pick a better female fantasy in some sense other than that, right? That's sort of, this person loves me so much that they, they will never leave, right? And so I think that is certainly um, part of it. I think there may be, um, if you look at the individual differences aspect, like why some women like this and some women don't, I mean, obviously views about homosexuality or something like that would be one thing that would influence that. But also I think if you find the fantasy of being, um, as we put it, a co-warrior, more exciting than being the damsel in distress, you might find a slash story appealing in that sense because they're usually both warriors, right? And I, one of the sort of examples that I, you, I've used a lot in recent stuff that I've been writing, including a, a book chapter that um, I just finished writing with Becky Birch about this kind of stuff um, for a book that Joe Carroll's putting out, um, we look at um, the Marvel Universe and we look at Captain America and the Winter Soldier, right? Bucky Barnes. Like, if you look at the arc of those movies, you start with the first movie with one of them saying to the other, I'm with you, I'm gonna, I'll be with you to the end of the line. And then after seven years of brainwashing, having that said back to him, removes seven years of brainwashing and everything's fine and he remembers the other guy and his life before. Um, and then the other one risks everything to try and save him and protect him. And so that sort of idea that that you've got a relationship that would last through all sorts of things like that, I think is very appealing to women. Um, and, and then the fact that the two guys in that case and in many other cases are really attractive men, yeah. well, they're both appealing to imagine in that kind of context. Um, so in some ways it may be analogous to men finding in pornography, two women together as something that's very exciting to imagine, that women thinking about this intense relationship between two really attractive men can be very appealing to imagine as well. So I think that's part of it. Um, I also think it's interesting because in Japan, there's a similar kind of genre called yaoi, where they read their comic books, their manga, and it's two boys. Typically, they're high school age or slightly older. Um, and they market it to teenage girls. Um, and it's been like that for a long time. It's much more accepted over there. It's just like one of those things. You can buy them in any store. They sell them to their kids. Um, and some of them are really explicit and some of them are not. But again, they, they tend to be very focused on, on these sort of same-sex relationships. And so some of it may be that women who are interested in non-traditional roles for women may find those stories very appealing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of it anyways, for the individual difference aspect anyways. Yeah, let's not start uh, talking about Japan because I'm a really big fan of Japanese culture, but there's a lot of things there yes. to, to analyze because when you start talking about manga and genres of manga and anime, oh boy, oh boy, yes. <laughs> you, you would have a lot there to analyze. Tentacles and all sorts of other things, yeah, it's very different, I agree, I agree, it's, it's much more complex than what you see over here. Yeah, sure. Okay, so before we go, would you like to tell us about your upcoming book with Barry? I hope I don't butcher his last name because I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Is it Kule or Kule? Yeah, Kule. Barry yeah. Kule yeah. Uh, yeah. on the origin of the evolution revolution. Conversations with the pioneers of evolutionary biology, anthropology, and psychology. Sure. Um, well, we're hoping to have it wrapped up and, and out and available for people to buy by next year. So it, it basically, um, the concept behind the book originated with a conversation that Barry and I had at a Human Behavior and Evolution Society meeting, where we were sort of commiserating over the fact that we'd had some major figures in the field, like Margot Wilson, pass away, and that people, young people in the field would have never heard them you know, give a lecture or have a sense of what their personality was like, even if they'd read the research. And so we decided that we were going to try and do this project where we'd go and interview um, various luminaries and major figures in the field and record the interviews, make them available for people to look at. And then we sort of came up with this idea of collecting all of those interviews, plus some additional ones that we later uh, did with people who were part of the field, but not people who were 
as closely involved in the society. So people like Dawkins and uh, Dan Dennett. Um, and take those interviews, uh, give them a context of references and documentation, uh, and then put them together in a book with a little bit of an overview of the field and where we think things are going from now. Uh, and so really to sort of give it as a, like a sort of historical documentation for um, partially for the society, but also in general as a sort of historical marker of how the field developed and the way that different people's personalities shape that. Because we always forget that, right? We think, okay, well, there's these theories and these things happen. But some of it happens because of the personalities of the people involved and who wants to organize things. And, you know, who's really good at doing different kinds of tasks and who has relationships with whom and who had supportive schools and which people didn't. And it gives you a real sense of how many things have to come together for uh, seeing real big changes in the way people think about science, but also in the way fields develop. So it's been a very interesting experience. Mm -hmm. And when, it, when will it be out exactly? Do you yeah. already know the month? We don't know. We don't know the month. It'll be sometime next year, but we don't have the exact date yet. Yeah, it's still uh, the final um, manuscript still needs to be delivered to the publishers. So mm -hmm. soon, hopefully. It's been a while in progress, so it'll be nice to see it actually get done and out there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for the audience, I've already watched the video interviews and they are great. So. I haven't read the book yet, but I already recommend it to everyone when it's out to go out and buy it, because I'm sure that it will be a very interesting piece of literature, particularly for people who, like me, like evolutionary psychology. So, uh, Dr. Salman, just before we go, would you like to make reference to any websites or other places where people can get access to your work? Sure. Um, I guess, the, you know what, the easiest way to get access to my work is actually to go to ResearchGate and type my name in, and I've got most of my papers uploaded there, but anything that's not uploaded, you can always contact me for. And if you're interested in the human behavior and evolution society in general, hbest.com is the website for the society. It has information about many of the people who've been on your show uh, and their work, and also the conferences that we put on as well. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to all of that and the rest of your work in the description box of the interview so that people can go and check it out. It's very interesting. And Dr. Salman, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. And it was a really fun conversation. So. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Hi, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you don't like Patreon, you also have the options of supporting me via Subscribestar or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the video. Uh, otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and subscribe to the channel. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Janne Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Dr. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingard, and my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.